Today on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your week in sports cars featuring... It's Graham Goodwin. It's always featuring Graham Goodwin. Why? Well, he's my weekly co-pilot on this adventure where we take your questions, do our best to answer them. If we fail or struggle in that department, we at least aim to amuse. We should say, Graham, thank you as always to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and the fine people at Bell Racing Helmets USA. Then we should dive right in, because as usual... We've got a ton of questions. A ton. Good evening, good everybody. Apologies for the slightly echoey uh, sound from this side of the. He's the in the bathroom. Uh, there's rather, no, there's rather a storm going on. So where I normally record, sounds like there's a drum solo on the roof. So I'm actually, uh, of all things, in the kitchen with Husky, with uh, Husky lying on the floor and waiting for dinner. There you go. So uh, good evening, everybody uh, from the south of England here. And it's uh, as always, my friend. It's it's my role, isn't it, to choose where we start. It is. You are the official selector of well, the week in start, sports cars. Where do we go? We're going to start this week with IMSA. What? And that means that I'm going to serve them to you. And we're going to start with Lance Snyder, who asks about driving standards at Mid-Ohio. WeatherTech race at Mid-Ohio, says Lance, at times look more like a spec Miata race than international sports car events. And this without all the players. What do you think they've got out of their system for Petit there? Or more of the same. <laughs> oh, Lance, you are a funny man. That's why we love having you here on the show each week. No, we abs- this was a preview of what's to come at Petit Le Mans. By no means a getting it out of your system type affair at Mid-Ohio. I have, I mean, of all the incidents that took place, Graham, the using a McLaren as a battering ram on the front straight by Paul Holton, the Compass Racing Team, against Mario Farnbacher in his Meyershank Racing Acura NSX. Just baffling. And I assumed, like many, I would guess, that there's some sort of backstory. That there was a race somewhere at some point in time, and Mario just took super advantage of Paul uh they were on a flight and there was one seat left next to the window and mario jumped over a bunch of people and dove in just a split second before paul was about to sit down eternal enemies were created uh someone stole the other one's paramour i don't know had to assume that there's some sort of wow that's rather personal and we're not talking, as Lance mentioned, relatively cheap spec Miatas. We're talking McLaren 720 GT3, yada, 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 versus NSX GT3. I mean, these are some very expensive machines. It blew me away to see the McLaren just bashing three times in a row, turning left over and over and over again heading towards turn one. And so I reached out to the Meyershank team and said, okay, please download what led up to that. And from Mario to Shank to you name it, not a single person there could come up with any backstory of, oh, this is the time they had a run in somewhere and playing out in front of us. They were completely taken aback, Graham, by the Compass team's driver, Paul Holton, 
uh, using his car to bash the crap out of uh, the other car. It just, again, so there's no story there, apparently, from one half. And I reached You're out this the morning. high school? Maybe. Not again, I don't know. Lunch uh, it's, it stole someone's lunch. I mean, granted, you had a little bit of uh, geographic distance between the two of them growing up, but that's fine. And I did reach out to uh, Compass Racing co-owner Carl Thompson this morning by email. Should have reached out sooner and haven't heard back yet. But that's just one of many. Uh, Juan Montoya deciding to curate some grass, uh, going on and off here and there, spins a plenty, people hitting one another on and off just for good fun, uh, taking body work off of one another at points in time where there was no clear need to do that. And with no <laughs> LMP2 cars in the field, Graham, right? That That's normally one of the great instigators where we get the... Uh, some at times it can be the modern LMPC class. There were no P2 cars there, so we can't do the full. Oh, those amateur drivers—they were just negligent again. And no, his by and large, the pros acting a fool. So I'm just saying, Lance, if this is what we get for a two-hour and forty-minute race at Mid Ohio. Yeah, 10 hours coming up at Petite, 12 at Sebring with everyone and all skate, all players involved, every class, and uh, what we would expect to be bigger subscription, Graham, uh, in, in the majority of those classes, get the Porsche GT team back. Faf Racing just announced they'll be back for Petite Le Mans with their plaid Porsche, and we know there will be some more trickling out. Oh, no, Lance. Uh, the, the, the slam dance. It ain't done. <laughs> well, in fact, Lance goes on with a couple of questions about uh, Juan Pablo Montoya, as indeed does Joshua Ponce, who says, well, can we just take a moment to say how good, no, 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 how great JPM is behind the wheel of a race car? He has no doubt he could have caught the number 10 DPI and passed it to give accurate Team Penske a one-two finish at Medellio. JPM is a beast. I'm genuinely not sure whether or not that's a serious comment. Well, it is. It has to be, but it's also... <sighs> I would say that Juan's performance last weekend was typical, right? Mercurial going forward, attacking, just amazing as usual. Then also sprinkled in something I haven't seen from him in a little while, and that's the old Chip Ganassi Racing Rolex 24 Daytona prototype, Juan Montoya, who... Being at that time full-time NASCAR driver and such, there was a certain DGAF factor. Don't give a uh, about his driving at many of those Rolex 24s, of which he was successful at, you know, as well. But there were many instances where Juan just drew the ire of seemingly every DP competitor because for him... It was a throwaway one-off race where his boss told him he needed to show up and drive, and therefore he didn't care about anybody else's, say, season-long championship aspirations or otherwise. It was a case of, hey, I'm here. I was asked to win the race, and eh, I feel like the piece of road that you 
your pie would look better with me in it. So let me help remove you from that. And it was just I'm, over and over and over. I'm remembering a, a, a not, well, a notorious TV clip with Peter Barron uh, following. Was that was that Juan Bablin with Montoya taking out the potential championship winning car? Yeah, I'm sure at some point in time. <laughs> you so have to assume. Like he's out of the toolbox. Open the toolbox, put the watchmaker's screwdrivers back and taken out the Bushu sledgehammer. Yes, Mr. Montoya. Uh, okay, we're going to move on to our Swiss mate, right turn lover. Is Wayne Teller Racing leaving GM a sign that GM may, may be unlikely to make the transition to LMDH? Or is it that Wayne Teller just does not want to see a financial opportunity with, G, with GM to go to Le Mans? Does not see, sorry, does not see a financial opportunity with GM to go to Le Mans? Yes. Um, All of that. <laughs> yeah. We have a situation where Chevrolet, GM Racing and such, they have been, at least in North America, Graham, they have been the most reserved, intentionally so, in terms of any future commitments during this COVID period, during the slowdown in auto sales, the layoffs and whatnot of staff they have just been super non-committal about anything significant or long-term know that we've mentioned this before their contract to supply approximately half the field in the indycar series with engines that is up at the end of the year there's the need for a new contract for that to continue and to my knowledge it is yet to be done I know that they and Honda are meeting with IndyCar this weekend at their race in Indianapolis, and that will be brought up. Who knows if there could be a resolution there. Cadillac DPI is certainly another area of question. I wouldn't say short-term, Graham, uh, meaning will there be Cadillac DPIs on the grid next year? Absolutely. Question is more of LMDH, which we know is Le Mans. Le Mans, Daytona, I think we came up with a Husky, the perfect. Le Mans, Daytona, Husky. That's where the question falls. Know that that's the obvious part that many of you know. There's been no commitment there that I am aware of that they will be going forward with a new car, newish anything. There's hope and belief that they will, but nothing formal, even off the record on background to indicate, yeah, we're going to do that. We just haven't said it yet. They've been really good at saying nothing, and I think that has scared a few folks. So getting to the second part of the question, you'd be very wise to look at Wayne Taylor's statements about wanting to go to Lamar, win Lamar overall. Of course, we hope and believe that performance balancing will allow such a thing. This is a plan that Acura has. I'm not sure what the cars would be branded as, Graham, knowing that Acura is an American division of Honda. It's not international when the Acura NSX GT3s are referred to in international competition. It's always as a Honda. So not sure, again, how exactly it would be branded, but we can say for sure Honda Performance Development, which is the engine behind everything when it comes to uh, motor racing activities here in the USA. They want to go back to Le Mans. 
They want to win overall, and they are putting a program in place that would allow that to happen with at least two teams, that being Wayne Taylor and Meyer Shank Racing. Will we see Cadillac commit to such a thing, provided, again, they commit to this new LMDH formula? I would have to assume that would be a component. Just realize that the timing of this is what we have to really drill into and receive. The Penske contract was up. There were a variety of things you've discussed many times in the past on the show that led at least one side to say, we're going to look elsewhere. If this were something that were to continue on for a few more years with Penske, um, I can't foresee any way that Wayne Taylor would leave GM. But knowing the timing here and the fact that this is indeed something where new service providers were desired come the end of 2020, Graham, we absolutely had a situation where future aspirations for Wayne Taylor and Lamont question marks as to if and what Cadillac will do in the future and Acura being ready to sign new teams and having that desire to go to Le Mans on top of obviously supporting uh, IMSA programs. These things led to what we have. So it's a little bit weird to think that there won't be a bow tie or a Cadillac crest or something on Wayne Taylor's stuff once the season is over. But this is really a matter of time and either those who are willing to commit and answer to what they want to do in the future, and others, frankly, just in a state of big question marks, not wanting to do that yet, and the folks in the middle, not surprising, gravitated towards the one that's willing to commit and declare what they want to do. Yeah, it's interesting, wasn't it? It's, uh, to answer, not to answer a question, but you have to observe, in a past iteration with HPD and with Acura, we have had the same car raced both sides of the uh, the pond as an HPD, as an Acura, and as a Honda in the LMP2 years. The RML team raced their car briefly as a Honda. It raced at uh, Le Mans as an HPD and raced in the then LMS as uh, as an Acura. So there is precedent for it, whether or not that sticks into the LMDH uh, era, I think is, a, is a, an entirely different question. But I think what we heard, MP, with that announcement and with the commitment that was being given to those two teams was as close as we've yet had to a manufacturer saying it is our intention to go to LMDH. Uh, but you know, it's far closer than anything else we've seen to this point. Closer than Porsche have actually um, taken us so far, certainly closer than the existing manufacturers have taken us so far. Is it confirmation of program? No, that was made clear, but the intent was very clear, wasn't it? Uh, very much so. And I know that Acura is not wanting to formally say they're in, but obviously the signing of Wayne and Wayne's clear expression of why the key reason he wanted to do this with Acura, it answers the question. Uh, We just have to await the formal presentation of that answer. Let's move on to GTLM, and we've got a couple of questions, one here from Alex Agnola and the other one from a guy, Dani, can't pronounce that, Daniel Summers Guile. Wow. I think is the name. Uh, Alex says, what are your thoughts on the Minihara preview of next year's GTLM class? Hashtag me personally. Kind of forgot they're out there with much more interesting battles in DPI and GTD. Daniel, because of course it's Daniel Summerskill, 
Oh, serial questioner. With the end of the year fast approaching, is there any news regarding IMSA reaching out to other manufacturers to help prop up GTLM? Given BMW aren't keen on racing uh, only against Corvettes, could we see Ferrari giving support to Rizzi, Scuderia Corsa, and the AF, AF Corsa type deal? What about Aston Martin, perhaps their part there? And what as well, MP, about the the conversations we know have been going on in the background with manufacturers to potentially come up with that enhanced GT3 package? The first part would say I'm very confident that conversations took place at Le Mans between IMSA and I'll just assume every team entered in GTE Pro, if not AM. Uh, The cars are needed and wanted more than anything. I don't know if I would say it is Mark-specific. So that's something to keep in mind, first of all. What would be interesting, knowing that... We're talking major promotions. Ferrari has a fairly decent uh, presence here in the U.S. Obviously, when we have the Grand Prix running, there's lots of attention on the team, the Scoot area, for one week. Outside of that, we obviously have the Ferrari Challenge Series, which runs well below the radar of anybody and everybody. But we do in IMSA, I think, in SRO GT. America World GT3 Challenge 3 America GT Americas. Uh, there's a little bit there as well in terms of 488s and whatever else it might be running. It's there, but I would say that there isn't much of a true come on out and see the Ferraris. Here's a, a real strong link back to the factory type presence. And so to the question from Mr. Samers Gill. I believe the uh, he's from Quebec. There is certainly something that I would foresee being of value if Ferrari, if the factory wanted to help uh, boost its presence, help IMSA, and again, make maybe a little bit more of a, a strong link that might bring Ferrari fans out to come and watch. We have the Scuderia Corsa entry, of course, uh, painted in white with the WeatherTech colors. For Cooper McNeil and Tony Vlander in GTD, that's very much a weather tech effort. I know that it is a Ferrari, but I don't know if the average person or fan draws that link uh, back to the factory. So, yeah, I think there could be something uh, in enhancement from the factory to get an AF course or Reese or whomever here and running in deliver more of a factory presence there that might be something fun to promote and really amplify. It's been a while, Graham, since we could say Reese, even pretty much not kind of sort of being a full works team, but at least we know that it has some sort of tentacles back uh, to the factory. That was kind of a cool thing. There was a real feel of there being uh, Ferrari versus effort, and we're lacking that. So, Yes, love the idea. Don't know if Ferrari would actually put money behind it, but I do love the idea. As for the enhanced GT3 Pro, Pro-ish type angle, where is that, where is that, where is that? I don't honestly know where that is in terms of genuine growth or timeline. It is, though, on my list of things to try and educate myself on a little bit later today in at least one phone call that I have planned. There's one other, I'm going to follow up on this one, just a little MP, which is, you mentioned WeatherTech Racing, 
Uh, that car obviously missing from the mid-Ohio entry with Cooper McNeil opting to concentrate on his Ferrari Challenge push. Is perhaps that entry a possibility to step up? They did the GTE Pro uh, entry at Le Mans for completely different reasons, but but far from disgrace themselves. Actually put up a very good show, I thought, with GTE Pro efforts with Tony Villander and Jeff Sigal. Um, is that potentially where there might be an opportunity um, for, I don't want to say a real tweak. I don't think you really want to make it easy. You know, it, it is what it is. It's a full pro class. And of course, whatever else Cooper McNeil is, he's not a full pro factory driver. Um, is that where you might see something coming? Hmm. Particularly, if, if, particularly if, by the way, if Cooper has decided if he's, you know, whatever he's doing with Ferrari Challenge is put to one side and concentrates on the full GT program. Two programs become one, two budgets become one. Would say the family's love and ties to Ferrari would make diving out of Ferrari Challenge a curious call. I would not okay. anticipate that. They are very much a Ferrari family and Porsche family. I mean, they're, they love a few different marks, but that just seems to be part of the McNeil family brick and mortar. So I wouldn't, it would surprise me if that were to happen. I'm not sure what to do or what they might want to do with that number 63 Scuderia Corsa Ferrari and IMSA GTD. They've been highly frustrated this year at the ongoing lack of success. I know that if we are just strictly looking at the manufacturers involved in GTD. Uh, Ferrari is one that has not won this year. You look at BMW, they have a win. Lamborghini, they have a win. Uh, the Mercedes-AMG does not. Uh, Porsche as well does not. Aston Martin's been there part-time or so with the Harder Racing Team. Brand new car to the series, they have not won. Uh, the McLaren has not won. It's been pretty darn rapid, though. Ferrari has been a bit of an outlier. Uh, it'd be hard to argue that, Graham. Uh, they finished, what, second at Sebring? And I th- I think believe that's the only podium. I think there was a fourth and a fifth in there somewhere for them. But this is a thing where we have one team powered by the McNeil's finances for David McNeil's son to feature in with Tony V. Lander and... They have not looked like they're truly capable of winning a race this year. Do you pin that 100% on BOP? Continue to hear rumors that that's what's happening from the team side. But I don't know where to place this quite yet, Graham. I think that their frustrations are certainly valid. I can't argue with that. I also wonder if we're seeing the general rise in competition throughout the rest of the GTD field or the vast majority taking it play to a place that is so incredibly high that where maybe a couple of years ago wins in GTD with Cooper and whomever his teammate might've been, uh, would have been somewhat commonplace. It's not as if, you know, Cooper has Cooper and his teammate have been, two, three, four race per year winners in GTD, but would say that there would be no surprise if they won. Right now, just saying that I have no doubt that 
we could absolutely say BOP has not always been in a favorable place for their Ferrari 488 GT3 Evo. I would also say that I don't know if this is ever going to get easier for them to win because if I look at not all, but many of the Pro-Am lineups, there's a lot of depth there. So that's why I'm. it's a little bit hard, Graham, to say, ah, it's IMSA, they suck. BOP is terrible. They screw the team every time. Uh, there's been some of that, and it's not the team. It's just what the BOP has been. Also have to question, in a Pro-Am dynamic, my friend, we know that limits are found. Yep. And usually on the AM side, once that peak is found, it's hard to expect a lot more uh, speed and, and whatever to be discovered. And that's when we tend to see fortunes start to drop off and eventually pro-AM drivers or teams altogether pull out of a series because they've gone as far as they can. I'm not saying that's where they're at, but I'm saying I'm starting to wonder if that's part of the question we need to uh, consider right we're going to go for a quick grab bag of others in our imsa selection cody oakwood says what do you see as the biggest hurdles in bringing imsa to the ims road course how does penske's exit from imsa affect the possibility of a race there i would say nothing doing between penske's exit from imsa and the goal to have imsa at the circuit would say money is first and foremost the number one item that will keep any series and IMS from playing together. So, you know, we've recounted this story a couple of times on the show, but I forget what year, 2016, 17, 18, whatever it was, learned that Gerard Nouveau and Pierre Fion were at Indianapolis for the 500 and made plans to meet up. And they told me about... Indianapolis Motor Speedway's ambition of having the WEC there. And that's why they were asked to be there. And then speak with IMS President Doug Bowles after they met. And he recounted something totally different. And come to learn that our friends from Paris and Le Mans flew there believing they were going to be offered kind sums of money to bring the WEC to play at IMS. And IMS was sitting there waiting to hear how big of a check uh, they were going to be given in order to host the WEC. Realize that we're under new ownership now at the track with Roger Penske and such, but there's still that dynamic right there. What kind of financially positive and additive thing is going to take place for us to run your series? I am not aware of IMSA being in a position to pay anything to be at IMS uh, right now, uh, especially in the midst of COVID and all the crazy cost reduction, staff reduction, everything reduction that is taking place for IMSA, frankly, many other series, to continue to stay alive. Just another quick addition, Graham. IMS is in the same place financially. (laughs) They are, uh, if we're talking a year ago, would there have been an easier way to make deals and you know, just do something positive where there was a little bit of give and take on both sides. Um, that's something that might have happened. I don't know uh, if we could expect such a thing right now, Graham. 
knowing that IMS as well is really tightening the belts uh, very, very heavily on the financial side. So, yeah, yeah. want to see it happen. I don't know when it would in the short term. Uh, we've got another one actually around uh, Penske, and it comes from JJ Gertler. Uh, just an answer question, he says, but I'm wondering whether or not there's any backstory to the Acura Penske split. Three year contract, of course, contract was over. But uh, do we know whether the impetus to look for new arrangements came from an unwillingness at Penske to continue or a belief at Acura they might do better with other partners? Super easy to answer. As I understand, the contract with Penske involved Acura slash Honda Performance Development slash Honda paying for everything. Full works, full factory deal. If you look at the cars that have run over the last three years, you can clearly see that there's no major external company branding. You know, there we might have seen an oil company. We might have, who, you know, we've seen some of the normal type associate sponsors, Graham, from time to time, but yeah. we have not seen a big non-manufacturer-based sponsor blanketing the car. So just from a visuals, it's been pretty clear. This has been fully funded by uh, the Honda Acura family. What you would have seen on the renderings of the cars, both Wayne Taylor Racing and Meyer Shank Racing for 2021, that has changed significantly, hasn't it? You can see oh, that yeah. Sirius XM and yada yada, like there's, if anything, the Acura branding is highly uh, minimized on both cars Konica Minolta on the Wayne Taylor vehicle and there will be more if you just look at a photo of the current Acura Acura Team Penske cars from last weekend at Mid-Ohio and those renderings coming what we're going to see next year it's a drastic shift from manufacturer branding to team and corporate backing outside of Honda and Acura. That's the answer, friends. We've been saying it for a couple years now on the show, and we just have finally the visual evidence of what we have been saying. The almost limitless budget that we've heard rumor of being spent just pushed Honda, Acura, etc. to their their limit and beyond their limit of willingness to bankroll this factory effort beyond the length of the contract. And so at the very first opportunity to get out of it, which is the end of this three-year deal, which is up here in November at uh, Sebring, they will be going to other teams where, and I don't have the exact number, but I've heard the responsibility, Graham, in paying for uh, next year and assuming the following year's DPI efforts with these ARX 05s somewhere in the 40 to 50% on the teams running those cars. So you want a really basic answer? Way too much was spent during the full factory uh, opening phase of this accurate DPI effort. And at the first opportunity to change providers, they did. And under the new agreement, as we can see by the cars released in those renderings, uh... Acura's name small, other companies big, teams are now picking up a pretty significant amount of the tab to go racing next year. 
Okay, a couple more. Ricky Zagata. Hi, guys. He says, what was the reasoning behind Action Express testing the new NASCAR Gen 7? That was at DIS, wasn't it, on the road course? I believe so, and I don't know. <laughs> I just simply well, don't know. I, Let's make up I, a good we, answer, we though. Um, well, well, number one, the number ghost. One, they have a lot of data. They have a lot, lot of data at DIS on that road course. Yeah, I so mean, that's number one. There, it, there's some completely different car. Natural stuff there to assume. You also factor in Gary Nelson, former te- former technical director, uh, NASCAR championship winning crew chief in NASCAR. I mean, of all the teams in IMSA that have extreme Daytona knowledge, plus the heavy NASCAR angle uh, with its team manager and overall leader, it's the team you'd expect to do such things. I that's yeah. But those are assumptions. So, uh, again, I haven't broached this with them. I don't know if I will, but that would be the most obvious thing that comes to mind. Okay, two more. One, uh, I think it's a very easy one to answer from Dale Johnston. Uh, does Ma- uh, Mazda's TCR program have a new car builder yet with long road racing closed some time ago? Is the program still planned? That car is cancelled, isn't it? From what I understand, I mean, I know that it was moved Troy Fliss. Uh, they picked up the Global MX-5 Cup manufacturing contract uh, in the wake of Long's closure. And I had heard that the TCR effort was headed their way. I just haven't heard if that specific TCR side, knowing that the uh, global MX-5 cut production is still good and ongoing, but I haven't heard anything to suggest that Mazda's putting money behind that TCR program to come to life. Uh, if and when, I again, another thing to check in on, but I'd say another thing that is 100% covid Related. Uh, final one for him, sir, for the moment. It comes from Matt Nidia, and he says, picture perfect weather all three days at Media High uh, last weekend, further reinforced for, hashtag me personally, that uh, that race belongs in September every year. IMSA took a half step in that direction by moving Laguna to April, making travel more economical for teams coming off the round at Long Beach, but stopped short by leaving Mid Ohio in May. Goes on to say that knock-on effect in terms of the prototype challenge thing means we've got a two two month delay is moving mid ohio to september uh, potentially a smart move for the future i like the sound of it and i especially like the sound of it knowing that this is just talking conflicts as well that indycar is now expecting to do a double header oval race at texas in early may next year i don't remember the exact dates but more or less the beginning of may they then traditionally do an indycar road course race the weekend before qualifying for the indy 500 we're also packing mid ohio sports car in here as well and knowing that there are a number of indycar teams that play in imsa not that indycar schedule really should be something that imsa worries about but you also tend to get the road to Indy uh, in those three series that take part uh, on the road course uh, with IndyCar. I'm just I'm not remembering the exact calendar dates here on the IMSA side, but you have a lot of young talent that can play, uh, that does play in Prototype Challenge. Um, it just seems like we're packing a lot of things within a very short amount of time 
in the first half of May. So just coming back to the same point, Matt, not like IMSA needs to change its calendar to accommodate IndyCar, but I do love the idea of it going back uh, to the same time frame in September. It looked beautiful there. It looked awesome. And I would say that that event, more than anything, and I think just pivoting off of your point, it's really an awesome, awesome thing. And it really does deserve more uncluttered attention. And that's why the jamming it in early-ish May, while lots of other things are kicking off and attention is definitely divided in many other areas outside of IMSA, I do like the idea, if it can be run without being trampled by nine other races on the same weekend at whatever other destinations, domestic and international, I just like the idea of the mid-Ohio IMSA weekend, as we had last weekend, really standing out and really being the big offering. And so that's where the September date, I love your thinking here, Matt. I really do. I don't know if they would just change it already because they've announced plans for when it would be held next year, but you're on to something, my man. It deserves a little more protection and celebration. And I don't know if it's going to get that uh, when we get to next May. Well, as we move uh, seamlessly from uh, IMSA, Tobek, Aslam, Zelm, Zako, our ACO racing sector, I think I'll just add to that by saying I'm looking forward to a calendar a little bit less cluttered than we've got for obvious reasons this year because uh, last weekend was just absolute madness. Uh, and we've got more of that to come, of course, with the the end of the season calendar clutter, which is going to have WEC, IMSA and GT World Challenge Europe final events for this season um, on the same weekend and two of them on the same day. Uh, that's not going to be an easy one for anybody uh, who wants to follow it, let alone report on it. So, uh, yeah, looking forward very much to 2021 at the moment. Speaking of looking forward, now you need to keep your eyes wide open because I'm going to hurl. WC Asian Le Mans Series, European Le Mans Series, and Automobile Club de l'Ouest. Questions at you, starting with our man, Rob Chalmers, who says, Graham, when do you expect Peugeot to physically start their development program on track? As opposed to virtually. Yes. Or do you think they're going to have a virtual heavy dev program? Uh, I think uh, we didn't quite get that confirmation. Yeah, I don't. We we didn't get quite the confirmation I expected at Le Mans. I think there's more to come and come soon from Peugeot. Um, I expect them to be in for a more or less full 2022 season with their Le Mans hypercars. We're waiting to hear more about who their chosen partners will be. We know already that Ligier are involved with them for part of the aero development program. Ligier have a very capable carbon fiber um, production, design and production facility. Uh, They invested heavily in that, both in France and in Italy. Um, There's no confirmation yet that that is the chassis supplier for them. And remember, because it's Le Mans hypercar, they don't have to have a spec chassis. Uh, But the signs are that they are serious about coming as quickly as possible. Uh, so in terms of when we might see a car, when we might see it testing, my guess would be that we'll start to hear more uh, early next year about some of the, the shape of that program. And my guess would be 
that means we'd be looking to see something on track late 21 or very early 22. Awesome. Let's go to Jeff Easterling, who asks, will the Alpine LMP1 entry be likely rebadge Renault Alpine in order to increase their Le Mans win tally to two officially if they're able to claim a top spot next year's race? Also, will they be allowed any updates or develop to the car, or must they run it as Rebellion ran it? I know that we've had that question asked before, but keeps coming up, so folks are still curious. Okay. It'll be badged as an Alpine. It'll be homologated as an Alpine. And I think they've already got the model. To, uh, I think it's A480, I think it's going to be. So um, that's number one. Will they give a tuppenny stuff about whether or not it's two or one? The answer is they'll call it two anyway. There'll be a lot of referencing of prior trials at Le Mans. You can be guaranteed of that, Jeff. Um, as to what updates or developments the, they, they'll be uh, allowed to that car, the answer is quite the opposite. It'll be... Uh, pin back to hypercar levels of performance to give you an idea uh, let me think the, the quickest of those cars was in the 316s wasn't it in qualifying something like um, that it was, it was pretty rapid just kind of sense. Yeah, it was so uh, in terms of the race pace you'd be expecting to see from a Lebon hypercar something in the mid 320s to 330 so qualifying pace maybe 322 321 maybe so you're looking at reeling that car in in terms of ultimate performance by about five seconds a lap at Le Mans, which means about two to three seconds a lap elsewhere. So what you're looking there is, what are they going to do about restricting the aero? The weight is, a, is a, again, something that needs to be looked at, the engine power, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to be... Yes. Can you hear me, Marshall Privets? Oh, we can't. Can. We're going to leave yes, this in, too. We are going to be a bit of... Oh, good. Uh, we, we get a bit of breakup because there is a. I'm looking out into the the dark dark garden, and there is one hell of a storm cooking up out there. So it might be just a bit of atmospherics. Um, but it does it does two things. It, it number one presents a further challenge to the balance performance uh, process that is going to have to be honed for LMDH. And in that way, actually, I think this is a good thing. It gives them practice of balancing two completely different types of car. The Le Mans Hypercar and LMP1 before we get into the LMDH, uh, at least the following year. Um, the the second part of it is because it's who it is. It is Renault Alpine, and there's been some supportive comments emerging from significant people in the Renault family that whilst they're not saying there's an intention to come with LMDH or for that matter Le Mans Hypercar in a future year, there's an active consideration for that as well. Um, so. What that means is they're certainly not going to actually balance that to be uncompetitive. Read elsewhere some slightly off-colour remarks from Pascal Vasselon at Tota, effectively saying, not quite, it's not fair, they need to be slower, but come on, guys, come on. You know, let's let's get some competition out there. I think it's going to be an interesting year in 2021. I'm hoping that we're going to get uh, quick and reliable Totas. I'm hoping that Jim Glickenhaus and his guys at Podium Engineering in Italy are going to produce what looks like being produced as uh, being a very effective package. I have, how can we put this, sources within that program, which I'm not going to reveal, which indicates that that deserves to be taken more seriously than some are taking it right now. Yes, we've heard these things before, but let's wait and see. Hashtag let's wait and see about uh, what happens when that car hits, or those cars rather hit the track. Uh, all in all, positive, I think, about 2021 in a way that we probably weren't five, six months ago. 
uh, with the, the death of the Aston Martin Valkyrie program. So in answer to your question, um, it'll be an Alpine. It'll be homologated as an Alpine. It'll be badged as an Alpine. That is clearly going to be the new sporting brand for the Renault Empire with the announcement that the uh, Renault Formula One team is going to be rebadged as the Alpine F1 team. Uh, I think that's a smart move for them. Um, and we will see what happens from there, won't we? But uh, I think my levels of expectation about what might come later for Renault are edging back towards the conversation I think you and I, Marshall, had on this show six, eight months ago uh, that suggested that this was the 2023 centenary race at Le Mans was just too big an occasion for Renault to miss. That all of a sudden is looking more likely than ever. Let's go to Rob Horn. Evening, gents. Hope you're well. Any rumors on BMW joining in the top class, be it Le Mans Hypercar or Le Mans Daytona Husky? Hello. As are what's about a dozen other manufacturers. Can you hear me, Marshall Pruitt? Yeah, we just got you. Go ahead and start that sucker over again. <laughs> Let's go it again. Well, BMW are in the room for the conversations about the uh, the regulations. Very aware that we keep saying that, but uh, these are weird times. So, look, they are taking an active interest in the regulations. They are taking an active interest in where that might go. And I guess I'm of the opinion that lot, a lot is going to be decided when we start to see other factories saying yes. We've talked already on the show about Honda, where they are. My view is the most likely date for us to get a yes from any manufacturer is December, where the United Champions for Porsche is the potential starting gun for that. One of the opportunities that will not be taken uh, moving forward is there's not going to be very many international motor shows, are there? So they're going to have to find their opportunities elsewhere for announcing major programs. So look in December for the potential that Porsche might say something at their traditional announcement of what comes next. Uh, BMW have been a bit flaky in the past with some of their um, motorsports announcements. Uh, they've got their own challenges with what comes next with uh, with uh, with DTM, for instance, at the moment. It wouldn't be a surprise if they bit, um, and it wouldn't be a surprise if they weren't the first. Uh, they're somewhere in that list of 11, 12, 13 manufacturers that might. Are they in the top two? No. Are they in the bottom three? No. There we go. Man, you're just knocking these out today. Uh, we're going to our pal, Right Turn Lover. Wouldn't be an episode of the Weekend Sports Cars without Right Turn Lover. Says, with LMDH having a spec gearbox and bell housing, will we see only bespoke race engines built to dock into said gearbox in LMDH? Or can engines like uh, Chevy LS3 be adapted to made up with the spec gearbox successfully? I mean, I can probably take that a little bit here uh right turn lover i would say of the manufacturers that are currently playing in dpi knowing that lmdh is really dpi 2.0 at least here in america i would not expect any changes within the current power plants when we get this shift to uh, this new formula i'm unaware of mazda trying to do anything different other than a small displacement Four-cylinder turbo, same with Acura. They love their V6 twin-turbo layout. They use that everywhere and everything and have for a while. And, again, assumptions that we will have Cadillac uh, or whatever GM brand 
in LMDH, could they go to something different? Sure, they're the one manufacturer of the three that would certainly be up for potentially moving to something different, knowing that a couple of years from now, those just using naturally aspirated V8s might be even more considered retro. As for others coming in, I would say I can't answer because we don't know who all's coming in. We think Porsche is going to be here. And would they be some sort of flat six like we have now? I don't know if that's going to get them to the power they need, uh, knowing that the internal combustion engine side is meant to account for 640, 650 horsepower. I don't know if we get that out of four liters. I mean, hell, we could go to a five or six liter flat six, I guess, to see. But uh, that could be something where uh, something turbocharged, which they do have, turbocharging in their production range could be relied upon. Financially, I think this is where the real question is going to come in. Knowing what we're dealing with with COVID and all the things we've discussed a thousand times about money being tight, there's certainly a willingness that I know of on the LMDH side for many of the manufacturers who've been part of these meetings to want to come and play. What I don't have an answer to, and this comes back to the money side, is whether it would be cheaper to build a bespoke LMDH engine, Graham, or if developing, taking one of their road car, hopefully, I shouldn't say hopefully, for the manufacturers with an interest in LMDH who also compete in GT3, I think you're going to find pretty much a straight conversion. We're going to take our GT3 motor and pump it up, amplify it and whatnot, but this is the basis for our LMDH motor. For any others that might come and play that do not have a uh, GT3 presence, those are the ones where I think they're going to have to do the cost-benefit analysis and find out is doing something new and bespoke cheaper and smarter than trying to turn a road-based engine that we don't have in some sort of GT spec already uh, into something that could compete. So uh, somewhere, a couple of options, but I think that's the way things would fall. I think there's two points to add here. The first thing is remember that gearbox is doing two things. It's, it's matching to the engines, and I can't see any way that IMSA and the ACO, having had those manufacturers in their room, and those manufacturers will either public or rather within that community or privately have shared at least what the options might be, they're not going to put in a solution that's going to count any of those manufacturers out. That's number one. Number two is, remember, that gearbox not just handling the engine, it's handling the hybrid system as well. And that'll be why there's a spec uh, gearbox solution here, because it's spec at that point, isn't it? It's how you handle the the input and output from that spec, that spec hybrid system. That's why that is part of the powertrain, the drivetrain. Uh, that's that one. What's next? We are going to Peter Bester. Hey, Peter. It says, with rumors surrounding GT3 replacing GTE Pro and AM uh, and such, could part of the ACO's reluctance uh, to do so be down to the fact that GT3 is indeed an SRO product, which they have no control over? Okay, first things first. There's no, I don't think there's reluctance. Um, I think they don't feel that yet is quite the time to jump. They are absolutely aware of where the difficulties, the potential difficulties lie in the relatively near future. 
Um, I'm not hearing immediately that we've got some massive working group working that problem, but uh, all the conversations that I've had with both manufacturers and with the hashtag powers that be, um, it talks about there being a reasonably healthy short-term future, at least, for GTE, and in particular in the program side of things, where there's certainly my side of the pond, uh, MP, a reasonably healthy um, privateer marketplace for those. Let's not forget, we have 22 GTE AM cars at Le Mans this year, albeit you know, a, a couple of Aston Martins, the re- remainder of them, a mix of Porsche and of GTE cars just yet for the big races. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. We had a question in the IMSA section about this. It's going to be interesting to see what happens about whether or not collaboration on that front helps both parties, the ACO and IMSA. We've heard of all sorts of potential solutions that have been offered, whether or not that's just for the bigger races. I've certainly had conversations with a couple of the big privateer teams that have indicated if an opportunity was there to come and do selected IMSA races, um, that they might be interested in doing that. that. That would be an interesting thing moving forward, depending on what structure, what facilitation comes out of it. And the timing of things like the Rolex 24 Daytona, and if you've got an uncluttered calendar coming into and out of that and leading into Sebring, which is what, six weeks later, yeah. seven weeks later, and the opportunity for some warmer, warmer weather testing, then maybe... You're, you're getting to the stage where you've got a kind of survivable plan that gets you through that sticky period right now where, at the moment, obviously, the major concentration from both sanctioning bodies is not on GT, it's on the prototype side of things. So unless, until we know which teams, which manufacturers, rather, are going to bite on LMDH and the Mon Hypercar, it's difficult, isn't it, to come up with a meaningful solution, a meaningful strategy that's going to give a solution that you can rely on for GT. Necessarily, that has to come second. Necessarily, whilst you can do some of the groundwork, the really deep dive into who, what, where, when, what, how and why is going to be, I think, at least a, a year or two away quite yet. As for the SRO link, let's be clear here. They are, of course, SRO are the predominant operator of GT3 racing products. And absolutely, SRO are also predominant in terms of balanced performance in that regard and uh, in terms of the product development worldwide of that regard. But GT3 is not an SRO product. It is an FIA formula. GT4 and GT2 are owned by SRO. That's why when you see some of those GT4 cars racing in non-SRO series, I'll give you, for instance, is the International GT Opens, GT Open Cup, you will never see those cars referred to as GT4s in that because they're not allowed to, because that is effectively trademarked by SRO. Not the same with GT3. There's a difference between market dominance and property. And that's one of the reasons, for instance, GTD, GT Daytona, etc., um, GT in the Asia Le Mans series, etc., uh, but not owned by SRO. But you're absolutely right, Peter. Um, it is they are the predominant operator and seen by most observers as being the most effective uh, body in terms of the the effectiveness of their balance of performance not least of course because they've got the most data uh, so do i think it's a complication everything's a complication is it a reason why they wouldn't sit down and discuss it absolutely not to do so absolutely not right now uh, possibly surprisingly so 
but certainly not something at the moment I think is sitting anywhere on, on numbers one to three of their agenda of really important things that need to be done. Going to throw this final Weck Aslam Elms echo question to you uh, from the top of the list, and then obviously let you pick through any others that you sure. might want to cover off, Graham. This comes in from our pal James Counter. It says Graham, very generally, what should be watch- what should we be watching out for? The good old ELMS also asks: Has mm. anyone had a chance to sleep off Lamar yet? <laughs> well, um, ELMS, we got the entry list for Monza, which is not this coming weekend, but next weekend. Uh, 34 cars for uh, the round four of what is going to be a five-race championship this year. I am hearing now that we will get the calendar at Monza for 2021, and that will be six races. Um, I'm also hearing, and this is the first time I've actually said this out loud and I've not written it yet, that we will not be going back to Silverstone even with six races. Uh, and I think the predominant reasons there, I think it's been a bit of a fallout between LMEM and Silverstone. And I also think that we've got a, a Brexit issue here. I think there is a lack of confidence in the ability for teams to move things around comfortably, both with COVID and with looming possibilities that Brexit might be a factor. Um, and we've also seen, for instance, GT Open not coming back to UK again uh, in 2021. So thank you very much, British government, um, for all your help in ruining that part of things. Um, what else to look out for there? Well, the potential for history to be made with United Autosports uh, contesting the uh, LMP2 and LMP3 title battles could be settled, both of them. Uh, this coming race for Monza and if they do settle, get settled in that direction and it goes the way of the 22 car, that would mean a pretty unique record. It would mean Le Mans win WC title win and LMS title win for Felipe Albuquerque and Phil Hansen in the number 22 car that contests both race series. That's never been done. It's not done yet. We've got, I think one of the tightest title battles in any class that I can remember which is for GTE in the uh, in the series, and that is the number seventy-seven Proton Porsche, and I think I'm right. It's the seventy-four Kessel car. Uh, equal points, and the at the moment the definition of who leads that title battle is defined by the fact that the one win the seventy-seven car had was earlier than the one win the seventy-four car had. Uh, so it could not be tighter with two races to come. And we've got Monza and then Portimao at the end of this season. couple of driver changes kicking around. Loic Deval can't make it out to Monza because he's at DTM uh, that weekend. So we're seeing uh, Indian driver Arjumani back uh, for uh, Algar Pro. What are we going to get? We're going to get another barnstormer. It's been a cracking season so far. 15 LMP2 cars, 15 LMP2 cars dozen LMP3 cars, the new cars there, providing some great entertainment and a slightly reduced number seven uh, GTE cars. It's just a cracking series. It's great to watch and with a great supporting cast with the Michelin Mon Cup and with uh, the Ligier European series. I'm just loving watching that racing uh, from the press room this season um, and looking forward to more to come. So lots still to come. It's not been the big drop-off we might have expected post-Le Mans. Have we all slept off Le Mans? That was a tough week. That was a very tough week for everybody concerned. Um, oh, the one other quick thing to mention, by the way, we will see the uh, the trio of 
female drivers that contested uh, the Le Mans 24 hours finished ninth in class. Great result from them for the first time together in an ELMS race. So how they do over four hours and now with a lot more racing between them, I think will be another uh, good way forward with them. By the way, with the 83 car, which is the other all-female crew, the Iron Lynx car, the Iron Dames, it's still in the title hunt. Uh, so a good result from them. They were slightly robbed of one uh, with the late safety car at uh, the last round at uh, Paul Ricard could change things around and we could see that 83 car in with a, a shout of the title when we get to Portimao later this year. Are there so any others be... you want to cover off, my friend? Let's have a quick look. Uh, right to Lover again. Could the ACO be in a better strategic position to welcome LMD- LMDH than IMSA with ACO, the top class prepared to accept LMDH entrance, whereas... IMSA may have the challenge to straddle the abyss of some current manufacturers wanting to milk their DPI investment, etc. This, You know what? This is a great question, and it's one that I was chatting to Stephen Kilby about this earlier this week. Keen to hear what you think here, MP, because this is just as much an IMSA question. What do IMSA do if a manufacturer says they want to come in 2022, but only one, maybe? I would say they're going to have to realize that that's not happening. (laughs) Uh, Whether it would be a Le Mans hypercar or the most ambitious LMDH manufacturer, neither are happening. We've had IMSA politely rebuff the ACO and FIA's eagerness to blend both formulas from the outset Basically, how do we get hypercars into IMSA? I'm thinking more of the big events, right? I I don't, as I've said before, I don't think Pierre Fion is really sweating, wondering uh, how we're going to get hypercars at Road America, Uh, more of a Daytona, Sebring, Petite type thing. IMSA does not want to do that right away. We've mentioned this on the show. If there's a manufacturer that's really keen in bringing their whichever model a prototype into the series. Again, we know that from a hybridization standpoint, IMSA has said we won't have those beloved gearboxes with the motor generator units inside and the Williams advanced engineering batteries and all that. We won't even have them in hand until halfway through the 2022 season. So bit of a non-starter if someone wanted to have a lot of fun and get way ahead of the curve and run an LMDH uh, in at least IMSA spec. Uh, So that's a non-starter there. And again, do we really foresee (laughs) IMSA allowing brand new hypercars to go up against what would then be five-ish year old DPIs somehow? I just can't Mm -hmm. see. I would have to foresee a lot of, hey, we love you. Can't wait to see you on the correct timeline um, but until then, do you want some free tickets and some hot dogs? We can get you those things. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome to enjoy that part, but we're not going to just tip everything out of balance because one or even two want to do something earlier than IMSA is ready to accept. Yeah. The key one I think is going to be, what do we hear from Porsche? That will be a starting gun to a whole range of things, including just how high do the technical bods have to jump and how quickly, um, there are a lot of questions out there right now. 
a lot of questions. We, we, I think we're going to have to get used to the fact that there will be some disappointments that that dozen manufacturers will not end up being a dozen manufacturers of LMDH cars. Uh, get ready for a rather smaller number, particularly in the current climate. But, you know, the, the key to it, for, as far as I'm concerned here, MP, is going to be not just who says they want to come, but when do they want to say they want to come. And I'm going to be looking forward to, in particular, what it is that our friends at Porsche decide um, is their timeline. That could be really very interesting indeed and could present a whole lot of opportunities, but a whole lot of problems as well. Looking a bit further down the list here, just really very quickly, Rob Horn asks, is the lack of GT3 manufacturers in the Le Mans Cup um, a concern to the ACO? Um, it was all GT3 years ago. Numbers of GT3 haven't grown except for the Le Mans races. Any reason why are the ACO concerned? I think it's a great question. I think it's possibly been one of the products that's been rather overlooked in the dash for survival elsewhere. And I think it could be an interesting question that might uh, trouble uh, whoever replaces Gerard Laveau um, as the CEO of LMEM, which, of course, amongst other things, promotes the Le Mans Cup. I, I, I tend to think it's been a bit of a overspill for the LMS for a little bit too long. I think it's got potential to grow. Uh, I think it needs a bit more attention. I think it could maybe the um, the announcement from IMSA that LMP3 will be welcome there for full season and addition to uh, addition to which with uh, uh, with the Rolex 24 being a standalone maybe that all of a sudden competition uh, there for these cars in, in uh, you know in major events I think it's a great value series I think it's a fantastic stepping stone GT3 you're absolutely right it's always underperformed and I think there is certainly uh, potential for growth there they might have to look at just exactly what their aspirations are for what uh, teams are prepared to pay for that product. And remember, um, whereas with the, the LMP3 cars, you don't get championship winner uh, getting uh, a Le Mans entry. Uh, what you get is a guarantee that you can get into the LMS the following season. The GT3 championship winner does get an automatic Le Mans entry. That is one of those prizes that money can't buy. Um, Frankly, I think more effort can and should be put into getting that message across to the myriad of European uh, GT3 teams that might be looking to take that step because they have had remarkable success in converting those GT3 championship winners in the Le Mans Cup to full season uh, ELMS and later on uh, WEC um, Championship contenders, look at what's going on with TF Sport at the moment. TF Sport, now Le Mans winners, were the first winners of the Le Mans Cup. That yeah. was their introduction into uh, ACO Rules Racing. Um, lessons need to be learned there. It's a great question. Uh, are they concerned about it? Probably not as concerned as they really should and could be. And I think there's potential growth there that needs to be investigated. Uh, looking further down, a uh, bit more about Eurosport. I'm bored with that, I'll be honest with you. Um, not not a reflection on your questions, guys, but it's a debate that, that needs to be sorted out. They need to decide just exactly how they want to promote their product, and they need to make the decision, not you, not me, not you guys out there, but they need to make the decision based on the quality of the product being presented, whether or not that's the way they want to take it forward. Um, I have a question, uh, Graham. Go for it. I uh, recorded last night's presidential debate between President Trump 
and former Vice President Mr. Biden haven't heard a thing about it. Should I rush and watch it after we're done here? Uh, I, I have a, just a mild inkling. It might just it might be a beautiful dedication to civility and presidential behavior from both candidates. Would I be correct in, in that in that assumption of what I'm about to watch? I, I obviously don't watch any news at all, and uh, from what I can gather, uh, just from casual conversations and social media, looks to me, uh, I think it got a bit too pally. I think a little bit too much backslapping. Too nice. well, after you, after you, after you, Mr. President, after you, Mr. Vice President, I think there's too much of that. And the, the other thing, I think it was it was almost certainly an opportunity for them to show their abiding love of the American way and family values by. But just not getting into that about each other's families—that that that I think as well. Stay classy. Wow. I think is the uh, hashtag stay classy. It's been a classy election so far, hasn't it? Politics I, are around the world. I need classy. an up, uplifting moment today, and I just felt I just had to ask. I don't want you to spoil it for me, but it sounds yeah. like everything I've been hoping for—just yeah. a, a, a well of positivity. Marshall, Marshall. it's waiting Marshall, for me. Don't, Marshall, don't switch on the TV. Just oh. don't do it. Don't, oh. don't don't switch on the TV. Oh, okay. Do, do, yourself, do yourself a favor. Do yourself a favor. Go to the refrigerator. Open up refrigerator. Take out adult beverage. Pick up Rocky. Stroke Rocky. Repeat. Well, there's Rosie, too. I thought you were going to say, open the door, insert head, slam door against head. Um, that was the other thought. But Okay, uh, back to the show. What are we doing next, my friend? Really, really, really quick ones through uh, Nick Dobbinyak and uh, Ian Keyworth about Toyota. Uh, Ian asks, will the LMH be called the Toyota TSO60? This is the car we saw the road car version of at the moment. I don't believe so. I think they're going to look to just change the record on that one a little bit. I'm not quite sure exactly what they're going to be calling that car, but, um, you know, we will hashtag wait and see what they – but I don't believe it will be the TSO60. And Nick uh, Dobinyak says, what will be the legacy of the Toyota LMP1 program in the not-too-distant future? He feels like we look back in awe at the Porsche and Audi LMP1 cars, seem to discount the Toyota in that discussion. At the end of the day, they were the only ones still standing. See what else they were. They were the fastest. The fastest, most uh, highly developed and all-round awesome. Will it affect the legacy of that car that the, the competition fell away I think I will always regret the fact they didn't get to show how good that car was against the other opposition. It's really easy, isn't it, just to look at single lap times or race distances, et cetera, et cetera. No doubt in my mind, they continue to develop that uh, that car, that uh, drivetrain in particular. And what you were looking at um, was the absolute peak of development of that technology. I will miss them massively. And I think it's it's sad that perhaps Toyota's legacy with that car will be affected by the fact that the opposition fell away. Thanks to them for sticking around, because without them, we could have been looking pretty bleak for a, a world championship. At least what we've had for the last year or two is a car worthy of a world championship, without a shadow of a doubt, a car worthy of a world championship. Great, too, that we've seen Rebellion um, stick to it, at least until Le Mans this year. Um, I had a long chat with Bart Hayden uh, this week mm. uh, after doing a uh, piece for Delhi Sports Car that uh, looked at every car that Rebellion Racing and its predecessors has entered over 13 years at Le Mans and, uh, and more. You know, the two wins, of course, at uh, Petit Le Mans, wins as well in the Le Mans series and championship wins too. 
um, you know, we're coming to the end of an era, and it's been a great era in very many ways. It's fallen off towards the end. It's a bit like GT1 in a way, isn't it? You know, that was just all kinds of awesome. And then it just went wrong. Things just went in a different direction. Budgets began to find reality, etc. But I hope we remember um, the Toyota's, I don't want to say sympathy, because that's the wrong, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? They deserve to be remembered for what they are and what they were, which is something Sexy. I think we're going to miss. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, they were. But the other thing is, something I think we're going to miss for a while in, in world motorsport, which was they were cutting edge. They really were looking at technology and saying, what can we squeeze out of this? Not where's the limit that we're going to set that everybody else has to meet and then we'll keep it at that. But what what can we squeeze out of of this kind of package and we're going to miss that i'm afraid that, that it might be the last of this kind that we see for a long long time uh, maybe until we get into the other alternative technologies that come forward but um if you're one of those is one of the haters i think you're wrong it's the honest answer i think you've got to take two steps away from those cars whether or not they were racing themselves or not and just look and see what they were capable of doing go and have a look at some of the results from five, seven, ten years ago. Look at the numbers we're talking about there and look at the numbers these things, you know, uh, could achieve at a canter, never mind when uh, on full rich. And, yeah, yeah, it's going to be great if we do manage to get 10, 15 cars in a top class in the same kind of performance bracket and we're, we're going to be looking at, you know, qualifying and race wins for, you know, measured in tenths. That would be absolutely fantastic. But for pure, raw technology-driven performance. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime, is the honest answer, MP, and I have a horrible feeling I might not see it again. Hmm. Well, we're going to hope that that isn't the case. Any more wet Elms Echo, or do you select something new? Let's go for a couple of Hey General, shall we? Oh, we shall. uh, Take a, a bit of a kind of you know a grab bag approach that you want to pick one for me and i'll pick one for you oh we're it's almost like we're dressing each other here i love uh i love (laughs) the way we do this uh so last weekend i mentioned that the mid-ohio imsa race seemed to be run in a little bit of isolation of course there was the nurburgring 24 which i delightfully forgot to include in the fact that no there was uh, granted in america there was a bit of isolation but internationally not so uh josh ridgen asks have you ever seen a race disruption as long as the N24's red flag period this past weekend? And have you ever seen rain that causes many front-running cars to crash and spin in such a short amount of time? Well, we've, we've had raised, uh, rain delays and fog delays, for that matter, at Nürburgring in recent times. I think uh, our good friend Janusz Kaglika was saying, is it the seventh time, I think he said, that, that we've seen red flag interruptions for that race. And it seems to me the majority of those have been in recent times, two rain delays in my time commentating on that race and one for fog. Now, whether or not any of them got close to 10 hours uh, is is something I'd have to look up. But there were certainly fairly significant delays for, um, for weather at uh, the Nürburgring, and quite correctly so. That place is stone-cold dangerous in those conditions have i seen the, that number of cars running off well yes i've seen it several times at the nurburgring the green 24 hours itself we had that uh, race what year was it mp with the cars all skidding off at cota where we got hit with that squall 
um, with I seem to remember thinking Mike Conway, of multiple. Sideways. <laughs> I'm yeah. thinking of multiple <laughs> years, but yes, point taken. So the answer is it, it's yes. I've seen it multiple times. Is the honest answer, uh, Josh? And when rays, rain comes out of absolutely nowhere, if you haven't seen it, then go to YouTube and look up British GT Ulton Park rain crash and watch it all as basically half the then GT1, GT2 and GT Cup uh, British GT field was wiped out with a huge rainstorm that hit half the circuit. Quite literally, that weekend I was sitting in uh, in the press room became aware that something was going on out of our sights. Uh, the tone of the uh, the um, trackside commentator went up a few octaves. And at that point, my then young son and my then young nephew were there watching, came in like drowned rats. We were in bright sunshine on the pit straight, and it had just gone horribly, horribly wrong. So have a look at that. You'll see how wrong it can go with weather and how quickly. Uh, and trust me, when you when you watch that clip, uh, one side of the of the circuit was absolutely bone dry. The other side of the circuit was literally um, just running uh, with surface water. Everybody out on slicks, and watch how quickly someone's investment in two Celine S7Rs can disappear in front of their eyes. That's all I'll say about that. Take a look at it on YouTube. Tell us what you think on social media. Um, but yes, sadly, multiple times I've seen what weather can do very very quickly to a very expensive field of cars becoming a very long parts bill. Uh, pick one go. for your good, good self. Uh, this one, this is one I've not seen before. This is uh, from uh, At This Moment in Time uh, on Twitter. Um, what drew him to sports, well, me, me to sports cars, him, her to sports cars with a variety and state of bonkersness, but with P- P1 Sunset, P2 and Orica Invitational, GTE and endangered species and likely LMDH to become Daytona uh, Eclipse car car. Is there a path back to exciting, innovative, innovative uh, diversity in sporty cars? Says our new questioning friend, MP. What say you? Other than LMH, other than hypercar, that's the only place where I am holding expectations for innovative fun in the future and diversity in the future because if we're looking at what we have for current regs graham and what we are hoping to see happen here based on declarations of intent from the aco wc and imsa what we're going to have here in my domestic series which obviously can also travel and participate in the overall top overall class at lamar with lmd husky it's the same thing we have right now. And I don't dislike the cars that we have right now, but they're based on spec P2 machines. Uh, you have mildly different body work between them. And after that, they're homologated for the year. Not a whole lot of fun from the outset. Mm-hmm. If we're just talking conceptual diversity, knowing that their underpinnings are indeed the same that we see running around in a pure spec uh, LMP2 class. So I don't know of anything, Graham, coming on the GT front that would make me think, wow, we're going in truly interesting areas where pick the various brands, Aston, BMW, so on and so forth, can just say, hey, we're going to bolt a big thing here and try this there, and we're just going to go nuts and have fun. Old IMSA GTO 
approach or group seven approach i can't first i don't know of anything happening there so really it all just points to hypercar and that's not going to be a domestic series here in the u.s we hope to obviously see them run at some point in time in the u.s but internationally that's the one that i have my eye on because there is a pretty significant degree of freedom allowed and I mean, hell, even Baikalis is getting in on the game. So that if, if they're playing, you know that uniqueness and differences are embraced. <laughs> so that's uh, this moment in time. That's uh, or this moment. Oh, time. That's where my technical curiosity happens to fall. Yeah. Hashtag unique differences. Um, right. OK, let's have a look here. Well, uh, we should throw in... Um, ...of the 2021 Bathurst 12 hours. says it's fairly safe to say no teams or drivers from outside Australia will be allowed to take part. Is the event expected to happen at all next year? I think it's looking bleak. Yes. I don't know. I only heard part of what you read. I'm trying to find the question. So, hey, <laughs> this oh, is apologies. just... Do you want me to go again? Sorry, it's a little more of the dropout. If this is Nikolai uh, B., that is uh, asking about the status of the, the Bathurst 12 hours. I think the answer, Nikolai, is with the current travel restrictions into, out of, and around Australia, the prospects of that being an international event right now are looking extremely bleak, uh, is the honest answer there. I wish that weren't so. It is one of my absolutely favourite events of the year. Uh, but my fear is that that one uh, is not looking as if it's going to be an international event in 2021. It might be that that just has to be a pause, and I think we give them that one. Um, you know, their safety, uh, you know, their their, their uh, safety, their national uh, efforts on public health uh, come above our efforts to enjoy a single sports car race. So it's a hashtag wait and see, but I think we all know what the answer is going to be on that one. You know, Nikolai has another question here, which we had a few folks weigh in on this. Uh, Doug Holtzman, I know that you had uh, some comments and such. And why don't we just go with Nikolai again, because it seems to encompass a general theme. A Eurosport rant last week. Can we do a N24 coverage rant this week? It felt like (laughs) nobody in TV production knew anything about motorsports, combined with uninformative graphics that occasionally went AWOL. A highlight being the 4-9 car crashing while we looked at trackside fireworks. Uh, Mm. I don't want to turn this into a weekly thing because each year, at least since Eurosport's been in charge, you kind of know that's my week, right? The post-Lamar Eurosport shitfest conversation. I might Mm -hmm. just, we might just clip off what we did last week, Graham. And by we, I mean me. And we'll just replay that next year in the year and just keep going, right? That'll just be a, a canned response. But it is kind of funny that where at least I thought it couldn't get worse in Eurosport, we've had a number of our listeners go, no, 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 no. They set the challenge. The N24 broadcast team uh, answered and won. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, for years and years, there was absolutely no coverage at all of the Nürburgring 24 hours. 2007 was when that changed, and we went with the first English-language broadcast team. I was part of that team, was part of it for a decade, uh, with the Radio Show Limited guys going along for that. And they, of course, have no control at all over the pictures, 
and the mix that they're commentating to. Um, but uh, yeah, I can understand some of the frustrations. It's a tricky one to cover that. And what I don't know is just exactly what kind of delay they're dealing with. But, you know, like any product, <sighs> look, I'll tell you right here and now, I'm grateful for whatever I can get is the straight answer for a race like that. Uh, because without that, I'm stuck with the timing screen and nothing more. The wider point I know that's been made here, one is the quality of the kind of the, uh, the production. Um, and generally, I have to say, for the racing we get for the Nürburgring, it's pretty high. Um, you know, I've been uh, involved with calling races for Fialen in the past, as well as the Nürburgring, Nürburgring 24. It's really very easy to get frustrated by, you know, the odd occasion when you want to see this, you want to see that. They're pretty good at picking stuff up. And they're also pretty good, by the way, that if they did miss it, going back and looking again at it. There was a classic example of that. Uh, during the Nürburgring 24 hours where and all credit to him uh, it was Johnny Palmer and Alex Brundle in the booth at the time when a, when a stray racing wheel ended up in the middle of the track uh, where the Nordsch Life joins the Grand Prix tracker and it was Alex Brundle that picked up that that had come from Mara Engel's car uh, that had fallen off after a pit stop and uh, he spotted the car on a replay creeping back into the pits and then you know, in comedic smash and this uh, in the middle of the track. You've got to work with what you've got. We're very lucky nowadays to get a lot more than we ever, ever have in the past. Things like, for instance, the ability to get Super GT racing live and with English language coverage uh, and now back in a, you know, friendly format with, you know, with a group of people that care about the product. Um, but I, I, the, the wider point, I know that's made by a couple of people in other questions here about this one, MP, and that's this is the one I want to get into, which is, and it seems to be a bigger problem in the US than it is probably this side of the pond, is these geo-blocking type deals is becoming a, a massive cartoon anvil for a number of products that comes back time and time and time and time again, uh, where deals are being done, and it does seem that... Uh, our friends on your side of the pond are probably getting the rough end of the stick here. Either it's in a place they can't get it without um, significant expense or the production is so littered with advertising it makes it almost unwatchable. I would say that even takes place during the easy-to-digest content like cable. (laughs) Uh, No joke. I mean, granted, the common play that we've seen here for however many years has been the side-by-side, as they call it. So they minimize the race footage, but maintain that while showing a commercial. Yeah, I mean, the I didn't see much. I've really just seen clips from the N24 last weekend. I can understand the frustration expressed by those who wrote in expressing frustration. I, of course, just love, again, the fact that Eurosport might have competition uh, for worst. But I'm reminded of the somewhat local 25 hours of Thunder Hill event each year, Graham. We have had efforts at times, not grand efforts, but efforts to broadcast it, stream it, live streaming, no live anything on television, uh, but live stream it. There have been some folks more amateur-based that have decided to do the comms over the last, again, however many years. None of it is great. None of it, it's at times very bad, 
but there at least is an attempt to provide a layer of, yeah, just call it a window inside an event that is pro-am. It is a little bit weird and wonky on a, from a domestic standpoint. And therefore I think you have to accept some of the caveats. Now you mentioned radio show limited doing again, radio comms for the N24 uh, that brings a layer of polish and professionalism immediately. So that's great. The, the pictures side, I would just say that if this were a WEC race or some other seriously professional series, then we would have, should have higher expectations for the overall broadcast content, whether it's commentary, whether it is the graphics or just producers knowing what the F is going on. Since it is, I'm not saying it's parallel to the 25 Hours of Thunder Hill, but it does fit that, hey, it's cool and really interesting. There are a lot of folks that like it, but we're not talking about this being a giant FIA, you know, F1 grade production. I think there also has to be a little bit of an understanding that, yeah, you know what, that is, uh, that's part of what we're going to get, which is not the normal levels of awesome that come with uh, top grade productions so it's the, I don't know if that's it's accurate the biggest or not, club race in the world yeah it's 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 not a million miles away it's it's often described as being the biggest club event or biggest national event in the world there, there is a level at which some of the the parties involved there um take a pretty much german national audience outlook to it but it is encouraging that there is investment from some into making that a more international event this year it's different again isn't it it is just different there will have been weather challenges for certain with some of the TV production side as well. Uh, you know, that, uh, that level of rain and storm that was going on at uh, the Nürburgring does bring with it uh, the production challenges and technical challenges as well. Give them a pass. See what it's like next year when things we hope are going to be back to a little bit more like normal. But uh, yes, for me, uh, getting to the stage where we don't have to use the word geoblock would be a great place to be. Uh, uh, we've got a limited amount of time. I have a mystery okay. call with HPE okay. in Ooh. 30 minutes. And I also just okay. had to decline a call from McLaren. So I need to call them back Ooh. before the Honda thing. So, uh, should we move to fun or what, what would you like to do? I'm going to ask you one quick question from general. It's comes from Karen Perez, Fred Everico. General question, Marshall, I know you've been a huge, you've got a huge love Admiration for the Big Eagle. Any love for the Texas Roadrunner? Jim Hall, Chaparral cars have always captivated me, regardless of its Can-Am IndyCar. Always love his aerodynamics, free for all approach, plus his dry humour. What's a UMP on the subject of Mr. Jim Hall? Complete admiration for him. Also, he brings a level of cantankerousness that I guess we might say we would expect from uh, someone from the Lone Star State. Yeah, uh, massive appreciation for Jim Hall. All the innovation, all the creativity. <sighs> Only thing that is a little bit of a sticking point is maybe this sh should not be a great surprise. We're talking about the Big Eagle, Dan Gurney. He was a man of the people. He was so beloved for so many reasons, but chief among them, Graham and Kevin, he was a man of the people, so gracious, so ready and willing. 
and whatever admiration that was cast his way, he received and did his best to return uh, in a gracious manner. Mr. Hall, not always in that exact category. Um, I know it was years ago when I told this story. It was told to me by John Doonan, then Mazda Motorsports director. He had grown up just an absolute hero worshiper of Mr. Hall, had purchased a whatever scale, I think a 118th scale of one of Jim's fantastical chaparral sports cars from the 1960s happened to know that he i think he was the honoree that year at the road racing drivers club banquet at long beach and brought this model with him hoping to have one of his childhood idols sign it and was just absolutely turned away and in a somewhat harsh manner and it wasn't because john had done anything wrong it's because mr hall decided that despite this Men, you know, fairly significant head of a manufacturer racing program at this beautiful dinner in front of all kinds of legends and dignitaries. He wanted to uh, hold a, a quick sermon in and around John and a number of other folks who were there, media types, I know, because they had heard the story as well, of Jim going into, no, I'm not going to sign that. Those goddamn people at whatever model company, they were supposed to give me my percentage of the cut, and I've never gotten it. So, therefore, I consider whatever they've made with this model to be invalid and illegal. So, no, I'm not signing the damn thing. And you go, oh, dear. Oh, so none of those things have anything to do with the kind man who grew up idolizing you and worshiping you, but you wanted to use this opportunity to sour sour his feelings lash out at a model company that's not there. So therefore there's nothing that's going to come from this, but it's just a few too many of those things where you go prickly is the word I would use. Uh, yeah. I remember, I remember at two Laguna sake in 2009 final race of the IMSA season, uh, the DeFerrin motorsports team, knowing that Gilles drove for Jim uh, in IndyCar decided on their farewell to the series they were going to do their Acura ARX 02A in the old white uh, livery from the Chaparral's, used the stylized number 66 on the Chaparral's and such. Jim was there. They had an old Chaparral, I forget what model, that Jim was going to drive. So big celebration and tribute. I'd know Jim a little bit, but not a ton. I was still early into my reporting career, Graham, but got a chance to spend some time with him uh, in the trailer, behind the scenes, whatever. And was asking him a question, and I forget what model it was, but I believe I now know I mistakenly added a letter designation behind it. The chaparral, what such and such, A, and you do want to talk about, you know, the record came to a stop, time came to a stop, his eyes lit up. It wasn't quite rage, but it was just this... Uh, uh, it was, there was kind of semi fury, but also, you know, that you have farted in church kind of thing, uh, where I, I just offset everything inside of him. That was good and decent. And he just had to stop time to tell me there's no a, it's just the number media came up with that. You guys came up with that. I never said that. I didn't do that. There's no letter. It's just the number. And again, it's just, 
okay. Um, where you almost want to apologize for existing because this simple transgression I was unaware I was making, he felt deserved this stop time and just drop the frickin' hammer on your head. It was hard enough to where I was almost went blank-minded here of like, I don't know what to say because holy crap, dude, if I say anything else that is slightly off, <laughs> I'm getting the impression you might pull a gun on me. I mean, like, it was that kind of overreaction. So, uh, again, um, I, I've heard many stories about stuff like this, which it doesn't sour anything. It just paints a very different portrait of who the man is. And that doesn't mean he's a bad guy. Yeah. It just means here's one final thing. And we're just, you're asking for uh, recollections or tales or thoughts and such here. Um, the most famous, if we're talking open wheel chaparral car, that was the yellow submarine, the uh, yellow Pennzoil sponsored ground effect chaparral, uh, 2K, I believe it was. Uh, that Johnny sure Rutherford. About 2K? Yeah. The, Are you sure? I don't if know. you say 2K, maybe not. E 2E, no. K2. Um, <laughs> that Johnny Rutherford drove to victory at the Indy 500, uh, designed by John Barnard uh, of Formula One fame and such. There is this raging, decades long, uh, it's a really, truly acrimonious thing, Graham where mm-hmm. on the chaparral side, Jim Hall side, they claim to have designed this car. And mm-hmm. those who built it, who did the physical manufacturing of such things, have regularly said, no, that is not true. This was designed by not chaparral. And so... Uh, None of this is true. It is something where my colleague, Robin Miller, right? Uh, You know, the world's most famous IndyCar reporter who's known and reported on Jim Hall's stuff forever. Like they are at permanent loggerheads. They do not talk because Robin maintains and, and refuses to change his stance that the most famous, the Indy 500 winning Chaparral, the Yellow Submarine, was not actually a chaparral idea, uh, nor was it manufactured uh, there in uh, Texas. So anyways, just these kinds of things where you go, huh, Graham, there are the people who actually yeah. made the car saying, we love you, but no, this really wasn't your idea, and it wasn't even made in your shop, and that's okay, but there's so much ego or pride or something in place where if you were to suggest such a thing, you'd be instantly dead to him. Just oh, weird. Yeah. So, well, from one, one racing legend, um, we're going to move on to fun. And another racing legend, uh, Lance Snyder asks. Lance uh, Snyder is a legend, by the way. So, yes, I fully indeed. agree. Uh, anybody that's got the Twitter handle at Doctor Who 1975 has got a story back, uh, back story there. Uh, it says Graham's LMDH, Le Mans Daily, uh, Daily Sports Car Husky, has a Twitter ha- account. When will Rocky and Rosie get their own Twitter accounts? It's quite true. He has now got a media persona. He's at dog underscore DSC. Uh, I 
shudder to think what he's going to get up to the next time we get a road trip. But uh, he's actually, you may have heard me actually closing the door. That was uh, that was Oscar asking to get out of the kitchen. He'd been asleep here for much of the show. Thank you very much. That's probably a comment on the entertainment factor for the Husky, but uh, has now left us. Um, so we're going to get a Rocky and Rosie Twitter account? So I, I actually mentioned Lance's question in my Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show yesterday. <laughs> I'm tempted and it saddens me because it just would further confirm how lame I am. Maybe I don't know. As I hear, you all might not hear, but oh, Rocky my. is caterwauling a room or two away, so he knows we're talking about his crazy ass. Rosie is currently sleeping on the scanner here to the left. These fools deserve it because they yep. act a fool so often. As I mentioned on the uh, IndyCar show, for the very first time ever, I had a situation yesterday where. Rocky, about two minutes into my interview with Elio Castroneves, which was recording the audio for and uh, such, Rocky decided to jump up on the desk here in the office, which he's done a million times, walked across while I have my microphone and everything set up in front of me, just super easy, walked right in front of me. There's about six inches between the edge of the desk and the keyboard. So jumps up, walks straight across, goes to the window, goes to the scanner, cool no problem he decided all of a sudden yesterday that this was something he'd forgotten how to do and saw many obstacles in front of him which did not exist so he stepped right and put his right front paw on the keyboard on the space bar which ended the audio recording uh and (laughs) then immediately took the next step with his left front paw and hit the beautiful red button which ended the phone call (laughs) so i'm like yep that's pretty normal pretty normal and so that's when that came to mind of like they really do need a twitter account i just don't know how much time i'd have to maintain it um because these guys are just jacking with me all the time no 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 no, it's not you maintaining it it's them oh yeah sorry it's them have you asked the cat whether or not he wants a twitter handle Oh, here we go. So, and I know that stereotypically there's the reference to old cat ladies, and that's a very dismissive thing. I know I'm trying to be as gender friendly as possible. I just don't want to become old old cat cat dude, old cat guy. So that's where I'm a little bit reluctant. I think folks would thoroughly enjoy photos and videos of these jackasses doing what they do. But, um, man. Here comes Rock. You just jumped up, is walking across the desk, didn't turn anything off. So he is such a little fart. Uh, Should we use Baxter's? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what we need. More cat stuff on Facebook. Um, What else do we want to do with fun? Our pal Baxter mentions, is it possible that rather than standing for Le Mans Daytona Husky, LMDH is just missing some H's at the end? Le Mans David Hennemeyer Hansen? Uh, yeah. Lamont Daytona Triple H with another wrestling reference here. Okay. Uh, I love those. Why don't we pick one more and then say goodbye? Because, uh, yeah, I still got to call McLaren and then I've got a Zoom, not a Zoom, a Microsoft Teams video conference mm-hmm. with Honda HPD in uh, right. 17 minutes. Let's go with Jean Wachner's question. Marston Graham, what LMP1 and LMP2 MC DPI MC GTP car would you use as daily driver if you could? Hashtag me personally. 
If I were looking at a prototype to wheel around town, it would be hard to discount the hybrid tech of the Toyota Gazoo TSO30, good-looking car, or the nostalgia of the classic Golf Porsche 917. There is a road car of that owned by Francois Perodo. There's one uh, road car, actual road car built. But being a pickup truck guy, can't help but think how many sheets of plywood I could stack on the back or the uh, AR Toyota Eagle Mark III. What say you, gentlemen? First of all, I love the I'm fact say first, that we're... The last of... Sorry? So I, I'm going to go first with this one. Okay. Um, I'm going to say last of the breed, the uh, Audi R18 uh, e-tron Quattro, simply because of the shock factor. That was a fantastic race car that, given another year, I think could have been utterly epic. Uh, it was quick everywhere, but just unusually for Audi, did not have the reliability. Why? It's a diesel, so therefore it's kind of uh, economical for the longer runs. Um, you know, the uh, extra-urban uh, mileage, gas mileage, or uh, uh, diesel mileage would have been pretty good on that car. Um, but more than anything, it was the sheer looks of it. It was basically someone had not just hit it with the ugly stick, they'd given it a damn good thrashing with the ugly stick in battle faulty fashion. And I just like the idea of that thing uh, around town and the shock factor that would have in the traffic light Grand Prix. So that's the for me. I was just going to say I love how we've spoken about shoddy production and whatever <laughs> coverage of the N24, and yet we're just routinely dropping out for many seconds uh, throughout this one. So I look forward to your rants next week about how shit our show happens to be. <laughs> um, I would say, funnily enough, I guess we're doing a, a double four-ring nod I would say, without a doubt, there's really nothing else that comes to mind that I would want to drive more as a daily road car than a 1989 IMSA Audi GTO 90. It's going to be that. I mean, come on. I mean, there are a lot of prototypes that'd be fun, but just not very practical because you'd have to jack up the ride height 29 feet to to go anywhere and do anything. Um, You could. You're already halfway there with the GTO since those cars had some pretty considerable ride heights back in the day. But, yeah, that's just something where it'd be like the Pied Piper of wherever you went. I mean, everyone would just want to follow the thing to see it and hear it, watch the flames being belched out the side, uh, that inline five-cylinder turbo, one of the best-sounding motors ever, uh, all-wheel drive. I mean, imagine the the curbs and the medians you'd be driving through to get to oh, wherever yeah. you're going. You'd be first. No, wherever you had to go, you'd be there <laughs> fastest. Um, but also folks would be following you, probably police included, because it looked yep. amazing and sounded amazing. And but they wouldn't catch you. Yeah, very, very true. And you'd be breaking a lot of laws because you could, because you have amazing quattro all-wheel drive. I think that's a great one. Uh, that's us done for the week, isn't it? Take us home, my friend. I most certainly will. Thanks again, Marshall, for the time you put into uh, the weekend sports cars and everything else, by the way, on the Marshall Pruitt podcast. Um, for now, we're going to say good night, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to say again, thank you to Cooper Tyres, to the Justice Brothers, to Bill Helmets USA, and to TorontoMotorsports.com. He, on the other side of the Atlantic, has been Marshall Pruitt. I, on this side of the Atlantic, have been Graham Goodwin. This has been the weekend sports cars. We'll see you next week. <laughs>